You're listening to another episode of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Sarah. He's Alex. And after a long, dramatic winter, at least on Instagram, Yadier Molina is back. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode two of the Nolan Arenado era of chirps, as far as the St. Louis Cardinals are concerned. Tara and Alex back with you again in another week where, Alex, there's actual baseball news to talk about, which probably is because of the arbitrary beginning of spring training, which may or may not, to those of you who are listening, mean anything in terms of how close baseball is to being back. But it does mean there are decisions that have to be made and things that have to happen. And that's what we've seen this week. So Alex, a lot to talk about as far as baseball with the Pakoda projections coming out and rattling everyone like it always does. And the health and safety protocols coming out that were agreed upon by uh, MLB and the Players Association. And uh, there's also, you know, that little signing of Yadier Molina that we can talk about. But before that even happened, the Cardinals went and kind of quietly traded Dexter Fowler to the Angels. Uh, That one was surprising to me, Alex, that of all the things we've talked about this offseason, that they went ahead and and made that move. It caught me off guard as well. It sounds like that was the case for most people. It also sounds like it was as close to a mutual agreement as you can get for a trade in baseball, especially since, you know, I guess that goes without saying since he has a no trade, since he had a no trade clause, (laughs) I I think that will be a good place for him to finish his career. He gets to reunite with his old manager and it kind of feels like an end of an era in St. Louis um, in in some way, uh, just because I don't know, like, you know, he, he was always such an interesting player with the Cardinals. uh, He was, I guess you could call his play disappointing in some sense. I think his play was misunderstood a lot. I think he got a lot of crap he didn't deserve. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the type of contract he signed, that sort of um, upper middle class type contract, is the type of contract that seemed to disappear from baseball a couple, mm, like a year yeah. or two later. You know what I mean? And so I think people saw the type of money that he was making and juxtaposed against his performance and thought like, you know, this was like killing the team when you back up five years before that. And those common, those contracts were more commonplace. So yeah, it, I, I was sad to see him go. I always liked him. Uh, I hope he does great in Anaheim or, or Los Angeles, I guess. Are, are we still pretending Anaheim is Los Angeles? Uh, I remember when <laughs> it's I, not even close, but yeah, we can pretend. <laughs> when I lived in uh, San Diego, I one time took a train to Los Angeles, and it goes through Anaheim, and I can assure you it is not that close <laughs> to LA. And I wasn't even in traffic. I was on, I was on train tracks. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll well, miss him. I think we'll all miss him. Yeah, I agree. And I think part of what made that – it was interesting. You said feeling like the end of an era. Two things, I think, that made that feel – very accurate in a way to describe it is one within a a couple of days of each other we saw both Colton Wong and Dexter Fowler the two players that arguably had the hardest time working with Mike Matheny now not with the Cardinals at all and sort of maybe a, a conclusion to that chapter in some weird sort of totally irrelevant but interesting to think about way but also the time that Dexter Fowler has been in St. Louis has been a bit tumultuous 
maybe even more than a lot of other players have had to deal with because of the fan reaction, right? Because of the expectation, because of where that disappointment took a lot of the conversation about Dexter Fowler. I don't remember another player that was so almost personally attacked because of their performance on the field. And that was really hard to watch. There were a lot of times where Dexter Fowler was the kind of person who would speak up about things that he cared about, whether it was on the field or off the field. And that wasn't always met with a lot of understanding or interest in terms of wanting to know what he had to say and why he had to say it. So it was hard to kind of, for me, see that chapter with Dexter Fowler close without feeling like there was ever really that that feel-good moment with the fans as far as Dexter Fowler is concerned. Because, yes, he had some very frustrating seasons on the field, but there were other times where, as Dexter Fowler went, so went the Cardinals. And that was what he was brought there to do. They just didn't always have the the team around him to to make up the difference when he was struggling. He also had some injuries that limit, limited him and uh, somehow that turned into some weird narratives, uh, at least as far as internet baseball fans are concerned, which may not be the best representation of baseball fans as a whole, but you know, it's, it's uh, a loud attempt at, at having that conversation. So that's often what we see. So I agree. I think it was, it was sad to see it end a bit unceremoniously in the time that Dexter Fowler had in St. Louis, but it was good to see that he was really able to leave on his terms and, you know, hopefully go to a place where he's going to get playing time, maybe not starting, maybe not what he was five years ago, but maybe there won't be the expectation of that like there always would have been in St. Louis. So the process of sort of clearing the clutter, the uh, unnecessary repetition on the roster, I guess, is not always easy to see. And it's not always easy to uh, to move forward from. I know there were some people, uh, perhaps unfairly, celebrating the departure of Dexter Fowler. I will never understand that. But I think my perspective is very similar to yours in that I have always appreciated Dexter Fowler for who he is. And even when his struggles on the field were seemingly never ending at times in certain seasons, it to me never felt like something that I could just let go of and say, well, I'm glad he's failing. I hope he fails so much that they send him to the moon. That was never, you know, the way that I could react to him as a Cardinal. So sad to see it end as it did, but hopefully it's best for everyone involved and he can get playing time and so can some of the other outfielders that the Cardinals seem to have so many of. And, you know, what they do with all of that beyond this season, I, who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm still laughing, screaming at the fact that, laughing not in a good way, but I think it was two years ago. Do you remember when uh, basically Cardinals fans shamed Dexter Fowler out of going to a friend's wedding cause, and made him, made, him, <laughs> made him go to winter warm-up instead? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, that was one of the dumbest moments, I think, in recent memory and where the Cardinals are concerned. I, I do think an outfield, and uh, I was reading an article on Fangrass yesterday, so I think fair to assume that the most regular outfield we'll have next year will be uh, Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader, and Dylan Carlson. I feel like 
that outfield has kind of a, a low floor, but also a high ceiling. Yeah. It's such a, it's so that's kind of exciting. I, I think in that regard, um, again, I'm not, I'm not happy to see Fowler go. I like Fowler a lot, but I, I wasn't expecting big things from Fowler. And so I'm a little more excited about the idea of some of like Tyler O'Neill getting more at bats and seeing more of Dylan Carlson. Um, not because I think we're going to be better without Dex, but just because I'm more excited about the unknown, I think. Yeah, and I guess that's what I meant by by clearing the clutter in terms of right. we've for so many years now. I, to be clear, not that Dexter Fowler or Colton Wong were clutter, <laughs> uh, but the, for so many years we've been hearing, well, we got to let the young kids play, and then there's not really space for them, right? There's not really that opportunity to see what they can do, to see if the floor is so low that you're like, oh, this was a terrible mistake, or if the ceiling is so high that you're like, yeah, okay, this is what we were hoping for all along. So it does open up that opportunity. I will admit, I keep forgetting entirely about Lane Thomas. And he's uh, apparently going to be part of that picture to some degree, at least in the, the you know, chase for those starting roles in spring training. But you're right. I think there is a lot of potential in that outfield. And now there's nothing stopping Mike Schilt from putting those guys out there, not in some sort of manufactured rotation to try to get everybody enough at bats to kind of sort of stay sharp, but not necessarily show what they're capable of and maybe just let them play and see what happens. So that is an interesting storyline to follow as we move on into the season. Also interesting in terms of what the chatter was, particularly from Yadier Molina on social media all winter. Yadier's back on a one-year deal and it happened, you know, kind of like Derek Gould was trying to tell us all it was <laughs> that uh, when the Caribbean series ended, he would be able to finalize that contract. And uh, just want a quick shout out, Derek Gould and the rest of the St. Louis media for being on top of that story, despite national reporters um, acting like it's breaking news that Yadier Molina signed this contract yesterday. Well, well, well. I, I- I, I want to be clear. I had it first. I told my wife. Oh, there you go. Alex had it first. So sorry, Derek Gould and everyone else. Um, Alex had it first. Let's <laughs> clear the slate. Uh, no, the 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 fact that Yadier Molina is back seemed to me like a foregone conclusion once Adam Wainwright, more or less, without saying any names, said that essentially both Yadier Molina and Nolan Arnato were going to be Cardinals. He didn't uh-huh. say that, but that's what we all took from the press conference when Adam Wainwright uh, signed his contract. And I have to believe that Adam Wainwright is a big part of Yadier Molina coming back. I maybe am assuming too much about those conversations, but I can imagine a scenario in which Adam Wainwright kind of rallied the troops and was like, hey, we obviously want to play here, but we also want to win. So if you can bring us something that makes us believe that this is a place where you're trying to win, then we'll sign contracts that maybe are less than we could have gotten somewhere else or fewer years or whatever it might be, because we'd really like to, if we can figure out the pieces, be here for the duration of our careers. And I can see Adam Wainwright talking to, to Yadier Molina and basically saying the same thing. So that's all me in my, you know, fan brain imagining what that conversation was. But regardless of how it happened, maybe Yadier just didn't get the other offers that he was expecting. Who even knows? But he's back for at least one more year. We'll <laughs> see what he decides to do after that. 
And I know that there's questions about his durability. I know that he's maybe not the player that he was five or six years ago. But I also know that every time we go into a season thinking, man, Yachty's just going to break down and he's not going to be worth anything. He somehow finds a way to continue to be valuable, continue to reinvent himself. And I like having legends that stick around on my team. And I don't think I need to apologize for that. Yeah, just give me one one or two good starts uh, from Wainwright when he's pitching to Yadier Molina, and I, I'll be pretty satisfied. I, I love watching those two work together. And at the very least, I think it's fair to expect Yadier Molina to be uh, an average catcher mm-hmm. in, in the National League. And, uh, you know, that might sound like an insult to some people to because people really, Cardinals fans really love Yadier Molina. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> I don't think that's an insult at all for a guy who is uh, 38 years old and plays such a grueling position and has played it so well for for so long. You got this sense watching the Arenado press conference. Correct me if I'm wrong. He basically said, like, yeah, I'm excited to play with Yadier Molina. You know, he made it sound like like it was a foregone conclusion that Yadier Molina was coming back. He may have just been saying, I'm excited to play in the same you know, maybe he may have just been making assumptions. He may not have known anything. uh, But I was never worried about, I was never too worried about Yadier Molina leaving. Um, maybe I wasn't just paying enough attention to his Instagram. I don't know. I, I, I saw several people say things like, well, you realize we're, ha- we're going to have to do this all again next offseason. And I'm <laughs> like, is this really taking that much mental energy out of people? Like, is this, this didn't bother me one iota. What, like, I, I didn't go to bed exhausted at night because I didn't know what Yadier Molina was going to do. Like, I, I didn't think it was, the drama that people were making it out to be. I know, and I know Yachty can be kind of a, <laughs> he's not, he's not against drama. And he's no, not, and I've no. said it before, and I've, I've even said he can be whiny. And in that regard, he and the Cardinals sometimes deserve, <laughs> deserve each other. But yeah, I, I mean, if we do this again next year, then who cares? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not that brave about it. Yeah. You know, I think part of the, the drama for Yachty at this point was that this is the first time <laughs> he's maybe been interested in hearing out other teams, right? He's not been to free agency in a situation like this. So I think I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. It didn't bother me. I think he likes the drama and he likes to stir up a little bit of a reaction and I can imagine him again in my, you know, let me just create a, a scenario that <laughs> has no bearing on any sort of real insight. But I can imagine Yadier Molina being the type that's like, hey, watch this. I'm going to post this picture with this vague caption and people are going to freak out and it's going to be hilarious. Yeah, I was never particularly worried about it. Look, if he had gone somewhere else, Sure, I would have been disappointed in the sense of, like I said, I like seeing legends stick around on the team that I've followed forever, you know, but I never really got the sense that he was actively trying to go elsewhere. I think he just liked the game. He liked the uh, the intrigue and the ability to stir the pot a little bit, which is not unfamiliar territory for Yadier Molina, particularly where Instagram is concerned. That's sort of his tool of choice to stir things up a little bit, make some uh, make some noise, and then just kind of roll with the punches after that. So I agree. If it happens again, and we watch it all happen again, like, let's just 
remind each other of this conversation and be like, hey, remember when we realized Yadi just likes the drama? Maybe let's not get caught up in it next time. And then no one will lose any brain cells trying to explain Yadi or Molina's vague captions on Instagram. That's just my take on it. But again, glad to have him and Adam Wainwright back for another season because, look, as much as we can talk about the analytics and we can talk about the stats and we can talk about how this team needs to try to win and not just be, you know, an emotional investment for fans, there is still an emotional investment for fans. And we like to see those moments that there have been so many of with Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina. And I hope that we get more of them. Well, I also said, I think a couple of weeks ago that, look, if you're not going to give us like an exciting new name on the roster, right. someone to cheer for, at least give us Wainwright and, and Yadier. And they gave us both. Uh, there you go. I don't mean both. <laughs> I don't mean both, you know, Wainwright and Yachty. I mean, they gave us an exciting name and we got Wainwright and Yachty. So they did. So, yeah, I, I, I probably shouldn't complain or I'll sound like just a, uh, a jerk. But <laughs> I, I do feel as though, Tara, we should probably talk about Colton Wong real quick because sure. we didn't last. Yeah. He had the news hadn't broke about the Brewers yet. Right. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about that last week? I don't no, we no, we didn't. How are you? Are you holding up? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's disappointing to me in a different way because I feel like we had just started to see the reality of who Colton Wong can be. I don't know that we need to rehash my whole history of defense of Colton Wong, but I feel so strongly that the Mike Matheny handling of Colton Wong really mm. kind of stunted his development in baseball, and it took this long for... Colton Wong to figure out that it was okay to just be Colton Wong, not some sort of manipulated, twisted version of Colton Wong that he felt like he had to be in order to play under a Mike Matheny system. And I think we saw that in that first half season with Mike Schilt, Colton Wong kind of started to take off a little bit. And then he came into his own. Was he the superstar that you see with, you know, an Arenado type? No, but not everybody in baseball has to be that in order to be incredibly valuable. I think he took ownership of his defense and was able to, for the most part, learn to separate that from his offense. And that took pressure off of both. And it's disappointing to see all of that work put in, all of that hope for what he could become. And just on a purely selfish note, all of my insistence that, no, he's going to be really exciting to watch someday. You just have to, he just has to have the right environment. And then to start to see that and to see him begin to gain that recognition nationally for the defense and be considered by other teams a threat or uh, even just a nuisance at times at the plate because he'd come up with that big hit uh, at the end of games like we saw a, a number of times. All of those things started to happen. You feel like the the ball was really starting to get rolling for Colton Wong and then he's just gone. And, you know, financial issues notwithstanding, I think it's a disappointing way for the Colton Wong, the St. Louis Cardinal story to end. Yeah, the writing seemed to be on the wall, even though I held out slim hope that maybe part of the reason for, you know, trying to get money back in the Arenado trade was so they would have more flexibility to sign a player like Colton Wong. Now I'm kind of hoping that, well, you know, if the Pakota projections from this morning are any indication, uh, perhaps they you know, need to uh, fortify the starting pitching. And, you know, we've heard rumors of that this week. So maybe there's a chance they will do something like that. And that would be nice. But is there any part of you that's mad at Tommy Edmund for being decent? (laughs) 
because do, yeah. they, do they let him go? If, uh, do they let Colton go if they don't have someone like Tommy Edmond who's making, I assume, a fraction, you know, who's making yeah. a fraction mm-hmm. of what Colton Wong. Basically, wh- what it comes down to is this, right? Like Tommy Edmond is probably not as good at defense at second base as Colton Wong because almost nobody is. But the difference is not nearly the difference in the amount of money they are going to make in 2021. And therefore, Tommy Edmond, um, you know, that, that has more sway, unfortunately, over the, uh, over the first thing. And so, therefore, Tommy Edmond, who I love, by the way, you know, I, I think I've, from day one, I've been a big Tommy Edmond believer. I like having a guy like him on our team, but I think that is why Colton is, was allowed to go. And so, yeah. are, are you mad at Tommy Edmond? You know, I'm not mad at Tommy Edmond. I think I'm, and I, we, we may look back at the end of this year and you can remind me of this and be like, you were worried for no reason. But I do worry a bit that Tommy Edmond is seemingly being propped up as like an equivalent replacement when, look, we've seen Tommy Edmond struggle too, right? He's not immune to the same kind of struggles of every other young player in this game. And we've seen Tommy Edmond go from absolute hero to the guy that couldn't buy a hit, right? We've seen him make dazzling plays defensively, and we've seen him look not so great (laughs) at times defensively. And all of that's a learning process. So that's not even necessarily a knock on Tommy Edmond as much as it is I worry particularly because of the recent past with the expectations placed on young players who had a good start to their major league career, looking at you, Harrison Bader, that there's suddenly this unrealistic expectation of how they can just fill in a spot, fill in a gap, just like someone else did because of the highlight moments of their their career so far. So that's obviously projecting that he's not going to live up to that expectation on my part. And that might not be true at all. But I'm not mad at Tommy Edmond. I think I'm frustrated with the assumptions that he's going to be just as good for less money when we don't really know that. We haven't really seen that. And if that's the chance you want to take, fine. But I worry a bit that at the end of the season, we're going to look back and go, you know, the defense that could have been, right? Or the leadoff hitter that could have been if Tommy Edmond does struggle like so many young players do when they the league starts to figure them out a little bit. And that's just part of the development process. And maybe three years from now, he'll be fine. And we'll be saying, yeah, Tommy Edmond's every bit as good as Colton Wong was. And I'm really glad that we, you know, gave him the chance to show that off. But the the unknowns there are a, a little uncomfortable considering there was a a pretty much known commodity in Colton Wong already there. No, what you said is spot on. And I'm glad you brought up Harrison Bader because I I remember after Harrison Bader's rookie year, when he hit, he had like around a 110 WRC plus um, and he was never projected to be an above average hitter, but you know, I played great defense and I think he finished third in the national league and rookie of the year. uh, If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I could be wrong. But a lot of people, you know, we were excited. Naturally, we should have been. But a lot of people are saying like, you know, look, this could be the best version of Harrison Bader we ever see. I remember Joe Sheehan saying that. Yeah. And, you know, that could very well turn out to be the case. And I think, yeah, that could also be the case with Tommy Edmond. He had an 850 OPS 
his rookie year in 2019. And we're not talking in like, you know, small, you know, he, he had like what? Yeah. I don't have in front of me. I want to say he had like 450 or 500 plate appearances. Maybe, you know what? That sounds like a lot. Let me look that up real quick. But <laughs> the point is we've seen that, but you know, same with like Steven Piscotti, right? You know, mm-hmm. Piscotti yeah. was, and Piscotti still a very, very good player. <laughs> okay. I'm wrong. He had 350 plate appearances in 2019, but still, you know, an 850 OPS in uh, 350 plate appearances is very, very good. But the point being, yeah, you know, rookies can sometimes, you know, sh- shoot onto the scene like a rocket and and then pitchers figure them out and they come back to earth a little bit. Or, you know, they can take an approach more like uh, Dylan Carlson, where, you know, it takes them a while to figure it out. And you never know when they're going to kind of plateau at the type of player they actually are. Point being, what we saw from Tommy Edmond in 2019 may be the best version of Tommy Edmond that we ever see. And mm-hmm. that could still be okay because he can still be good enough at the plate and play superb defense at second base, but also at third base if they ever need him over there. So yeah, it is disappointing um, that we're not going to have Colton Wong anymore because I do think he's, I, I, I am a big believer in infield defense and I do believe he's a difference maker, but you know, um, it, it also it kind of hurts he's going to a division rival, yeah. a division rival that was projected today by Pakoda to win the NL Central. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that hurts a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, we'll get to see him 19 times a year, so that'll be nice. But I think the bottom line is for people like us who, I got to be honest, I don't care much about, as much about the financials as maybe I should, as maybe as someone who pretends to know about baseball and talk about it on a podcast that maybe I should care more about it. But the bottom line to me is they got a little worse by yeah. not having Colton Wong on the team next year. So, so that's a bummer. I will say, I think this will only be the third time in Colton Wong's career. That might be wrong. I'd have to go back and look at it. It might only be the the third or fourth time that Colton Wong will probably start on opening day at Bush <laughs> just for the other team. <laughs> Wait, so how is that that's pos- something to look forward to. How is that possible? Because w- uh, with Mike Matheny, he often did not start opening day at Bush. Oh my goodness! It was Mark Ellis, or it was a tough lefty, or it was a. There were there were I think three consecutive seasons where he didn't start the home opener. Yeah, uh, I would have to go back and look to be sure, but I, I'm I know it was it was multiple times because I was like, this kid's right. never going to start another home opener. <laughs> We don't need to relitigate Mark Ellis again, but that was bad. Is the worst. <laughs> that that decision is, I think, when Mike Matheny lost me completely because I was like, "What? <laughs> what is happening right now? Yeah, why are we doing this?" Anyway, yeah. nonetheless, Colton Wong likely to start at the Bush Stadium home opener, uh, just not in Cardinals red, which is unfortunate. You mentioned the Pagoda projections. Yes, I feel like every year this rattles people to their core. <laughs> <laughs> and it cracks me up every time because one projections are so fickle because so many things can change them. And I know you were on Twitter talking about it earlier, the Cardinals and Pakota projections, not unfamiliar in terms of head scratcher moments. No. Um, and do we want to just go and lead into the chirp of the week? So I was going to talk about this for that, or should we? Well, we, let's let's put a pin in that real quick, okay. yeah. Because if that's what we're going to talk about for the chirp of the week. I do want to mention really quick uh, the health and safety protocols oh, were yeah, just yeah, yeah. released for this upcoming season, and. Uh, <laughs> 
interestingly enough, things like players have to self-isolate at home for five days before showing up to spring training. Um, that was released today, less than five days removed from when players will leave for spring training. So already off to a stellar start with uh, implementing health and safety protocols in an orderly and uh, logical fashion. Nonetheless, there have been some changes to the way they did things last year. A lot of things are similar as far as testing procedures. They've put into place uh, some technology as well as personnel for contact tracing that will, in theory, keep situations like the casino scenario (laughs) from blowing up unnecessarily if they can contact trace more effectively who was where and, and what they were doing. I also found it interesting, Alex, because we talked specifically about this last year when the protocols came out for the 2020 season. A lot of what was outlined was we're not going to tell you or your players what you can and can't do. You have to tell your players what you can and can't do. This year, there are very specific details about when they can go places and where they can go and who they can be with and what the repercussions of that are, which I think is an absolute necessary step in terms of what we have seen, not only in baseball, but in other sports as well, where if there aren't specific guidelines and everyone's left to their own best judgment, that's going to vary pretty wildly. So if you want to have specific codes of conduct, then you got to spell that out for people a little bit, unfortunately. And I did think it was interesting that all of that was spelled out very clearly in what the protocols are for this season. Now, who knows, like we saw last year, things change as they go along. And within this uh, announcement, there is the caveat that these protocols will continue to be reevaluated and lifted if it's safe to do so, adjusted if there are other issues that come up. But um, yeah, the the not understanding how math works, at least initially, kind of a red flag. But I did think it was interesting to see this time around those specific details in place for a, an MLB-wide code of conduct instead of just sort of leaving it up to each team. Yes, uh, I, I have to be honest, I haven't read the new health and safety protocols, so I can't speak too intelligently or intelligently at all, in fact, on on what they say. But what I will say is, do you remember last year, I think it was the first day an actual game was played, like that morning, they announced that we were going to have expanded playoffs. And Mm -hmm. we sort of accepted it because look, like we're doing a lot of this on the fly, you know, they kind of put together the season, you know, at the last moment. And, uh, you know, whatever, We're, we're kind of we get it, we understand why normally, you would not announce such a radical rule change on the day teams are taking the field. But I'm a little surprised this year how much they're letting things linger in terms of like, it wasn't that long ago, we didn't know if there was going to be a DH in the National League. (laughs) And that seems pretty ridiculous when you have half your teams going into an offseason trying to construct a roster. Uh, So I do think, and look, these are crazy times and like, it's it's unprecedented so and i think that's why last year we gave them so much leeway to do things like that but i do wish mlb and i'm not talking about again about the health and safety protocols because that's so much more of a fluid thing and maybe some of these rule changes are tangentially at least related to that stuff but i do think mlb could do a better job of having 
these sort of announcements, whether it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do seven inning doubleheaders. And I get it. That's somehow related to the health and safety protocols and stuff like that. You got to announce that stuff earlier is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, no, I agree. Like usually when you make such a drastic rule change like this, it would be like, oh, starting in 2022, you know, not right. not starting in two weeks or, or whenever. Uh, and I'm, I don't know if guilty is the right word, but I on, often enjoyed the uh, seven inning doubleheaders last mm-hmm. year. I never quite got into the runner on second base. I don't, that doesn't <laughs> do it for me. But, um, you know, I'm going to quote, Joe Sheehan, and he just basically said in a tweet, like, I like regular season baseball, and I don't like treating the game as a burden to be done with. This is a quote straight from him. That's my whole objection. These rules treat the games like an annoyance, just finish them so we can get on to the playoffs. And I'm with him on that. I like regular season baseball. And yeah, I don't always enjoy a 14 inning game. And I especially understand when that wreaks havoc on a bullpen. uh, But I would almost rather see just expanded rosters for the whole year to deal with that. And yeah, seven inning games. But who knows, maybe once we're actually dealing with it, I'll be like, ah, yes, that sweet (laughs) seven inning game, you know, Um, go ahead and move on to the next one. Uh, So we'll see. I don't know. I it just seems it doesn't seem like a well-oiled machine, I think is what I'm saying. Like, right. I feel like usually you have this stuff down and I don't feel as though that just does, I just, not the impression I'm getting from MLB right now. Well, and it's not as if the start of spring training snuck up on them, right? right. That's it's what, not that's as exactly if what I mean. like, they were like trying to, did. It, yeah, right. Yeah. Last year, everyone was trying to come up with protocols in a situation and an environment where no one knew answers to anything. We've had a lot of time to figure this out at this point. And that doesn't mean that what they decide to do has to be flawless in order to have been deliberately thought through and and given the appropriate amount of, of thought, right? But it's strange that over an entire winter, there's such a last minute feel to these protocols being put in place. Now, I will say, in terms of some of the the health things, the COVID-specific things, uh, I know from trying to plan a wedding that you can't plan anything more than like two weeks in advance at this point. So to some degree, I understand there's an adjustment that you have to kind of wait and see where things are, how things are progressing, if they're getting worse, how careful you need to be, etc., in order to finalize anything. But it is strange that something like the, I'm just picking on it because it's the easiest thing to pick on, the five-day self-isolation at home. Well, if you knew that there was going to be any possibility of asking players or requiring players to isolate at home before they arrive at spring training, the date that spring training begins hasn't been a mystery. (laughs) Like you knew what that target date was and maybe you tell players, hey, just to be safe, we're going to ask you to do a seven day quarantine at home. And then if it turns into five, oh, well, they quarantined for two extra days. But to wait this long in the game, you're right. It seems very chaotic and it seems like there was a lot of time to put a lot of these pieces in place, whether it's the DH or whether it's the seven inning double headers or whether whatever it is. What's the the last minute incentive to waiting until you absolutely have to come up with something to then put it on a piece of paper? I, I agree. I think it's strange. We'll see how it all plays out. But uh, players are headed to spring training. I, I believe the report date on that 
document that was released today was February 17th as the official beginning of spring training. There's like a three-day processing period plus the five-day quarantine. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of phases of the uh, just getting everyone there part of the plan. So we'll see how smoothly that all goes. There are also additional uh, protocols in place in case of a breakout of COVID and that sort of thing based on what they learned last year. So Hopefully, that's not something they have to dip into. But if it is, those things are also in place. I think we'll see how that works out as we go along. But I'm going to let you get back to the chirp of the week because I want to know what uh, what your take is on these lovely projections that have particularly Cardinals fans all worked up. Yeah. Okay. So Pakoda uh, released their uh, projections today for, for standings. And they have the Cardinals, I believe, here. Let me pull it up again because I... Just that. Yes, they they had the Cardinals finishing third, Tara, in the NL Central with eighty point six wins. Now, I will it's a good thing that, that came out after Yadier Molina signed. His yes, yes. So I, I'll <laughs> say yeah. when I was in grade school, I learned with decimals at point five, you round up. So they're at least giving us a five hundred record. That's eighty one wins. I assume you you were taught that as well, right? You round up point yep. five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eighty one. You know, we're at least five hundred, so that's nice. Um, but yeah, this seems like starting to be an annual thing where we all get mad on uh, on this day because every year Pakoda picks the Cardinals to do worse than they actually do. Uh, and when I say every year, it really is almost every year or every year if you at least back up to 2013 and Rob Maines pointed this out, one of my favorite baseball writers, Rob Maines pointed this out on Baseball Prospectus today in his annual article, Why Pakoda Hates Your Team. <laughs> and Pakoda, Pakoda's a lot like uh, fans in general, you know, the baseball community at large, and that there's not a team they hate more than the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> they do not like the Cardinals. And, and let me be clear, we're talking about a projection system here, an algorithm. Uh, baseball Prospectus is one of the greatest websites on the planet. Uh, they have awesome writers there, uh, up and down. So do not yell at baseball prospectus. This is not them sitting in a lab and saying, how can we make the Cardinals look bad again? This is the projection system that for whatever reason seems to uh, always pick the Cardinals to do worse than they end up actually doing. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a mystery because, you know, at first I, one time I thought like, well, maybe they just never account for the Cardinals depth, right? Because uh, you know, the Cardinals seem to always have, you know, whether, even if they lacked star power between 2013 and now, they always seem to be pretty deep. But that's not the mm-hmm. case. Projection systems take things like that into account. So what is it? I don't quite know. But this is what it's been since 2013. In 2013, the Cardinals won 97 games. Pakoda picked them to win 84. In 2014, the Cardinals won 90 games. Pakoda picked them to win 88, so, you know, they were right on there. 2015, the Cardinals won 100 games, and Pakoda picked them to win 89. Now, to be fair, Pakoda could not have possibly known that every starting pitcher for the Cardinals <laughs> was basically going to have a sub-3 ERA. You know, I, I think I think Ben Lindbergh at the time, when Grant Land was on the website, wrote that the entire Cardinals starting rotation was basically Chris Sale. Uh, so that's just not something that a projection system is going to pick up on. Uh, so, you know, sometimes that happens and that happened in 2015. In 2016, the Cardinals won 86 games and Pakoda picked them to win 81. In 2017, 
the Cardinals won 83 games, and Pakoda picked them to win 77. Woof. 2018, <laughs> the Cardinals won 88 games, and Pakoda picked them to win 85. 2019, the Cardinals won 91 games and won the division. But you would not have thought that was going to happen if you listened to Pakoda, because Pakoda had them only winning 86 games. And last year, Pakoda had them only winning 29 games, and we won 30. Uh, although that was 30 in a 58-game season since we never made up those last two games. But still, that is the longest ongoing streak of any team in baseball of consistently beating Pakoda. Uh, I don't know what the second longest is, but I do know that is the longest in baseball. Again, that's eight straight years. I think the Cardinals will win at least 81 games this year, Tara. I think we will beat Pakoda again this year. So I think we can add another year to that, although I don't want to get too cocky about this situation. And, you know... It, it is kind of weird, right? Because I, I think why why this threw us all for a loop is not because we think the Cardinals are going to win 100 games. But we do think they're pretty good, right? And, and they're pretty good in a division which is not necessarily that good. You know, they have 70 yeah. games against teams that range from okay to terrible. Uh, so, yeah, I would be very shocked if the Cardinals uh, don't... Uh, Eclipse Pakoda, but who knows the people who make Pakoda or I don't, does someone make Pakoda? Whatever. The people who are in charge of such a thing <laughs> are smarter than I am. So who knows? We'll see. And if it makes you feel better, I believe Fangraphs has us winning the division um, and, you know, winning upwards of more in the high eighties, which seems more, seems more accurate. But that's the of the week, the Cardinals and Pakoda, a match made in not heaven. Um, I don't <laughs> I guess hell, I, yeah, that's the opposite of heaven. Uh, yeah, that seems, yeah. That seems a little too strong. I don't think <laughs> we need to call it a match. Whatever it is, Pakoda, um, I, I enjoyed at this point. I think I'd be a little worried if this time next year, Pakoda has the Cardinals winning like 89 games. So yeah. I say, you know but, what, Pakoda, keep it coming. That's exactly what I was going to say in the sense of maybe this actually works out in their favor because I remember Adam Wainwright talking about articles that he would, you know, put up on the bulletin board at the clubhouse and, and call it bulletin board material when somebody would doubt them or someone would say that they, they didn't have it or whatever it was. I think this kind of thing is just for the Cardinals. Like, really? Yeah, again? You, all right. Well, I guess we'll have to, I guess we'll have to prove you wrong. Um, and also, you know, maybe it makes other teams not take them uh, as seriously as they should. We'll see. I think the the other reason for the angst is because the addition of Nolan Arenado in the minds of most of us instantly elevated the Cardinals and their success projections this season to pretty high levels. And it might not actually work out that way in terms of how the algorithm still sees uh, the potential lack of offense for the Cardinals. So we'll, we'll see what ends up happening and how far they can exceed those projections. But always an entertaining day watching people melt down because of the Pakoda projections, or at least just trying to figure out how it's happening again. Tara, can I add something to this? I just thought of, of something. I wanted to look this up. So Bill Pakoda, the actual player who, um, you know, it's an acronym, but, you know, that's who this was named after. Bill Pakota, who spent his last two seasons, he spent most of his career with the Kansas City Royals, but spent his last two years with the Atlanta Braves. And this was in, what, 1993 and 94. Um, so he actually did take some at-bats against the Cardinals. And in 69, played appearances against the Cardinals. He had a 692 OPS. So, you know what? The real Pakota didn't do that well. 
against the Cardinals either. So, you know, this, this, <laughs> this goes way, way back. Just continuing yeah. the the trend, the tradition, if you will. Yeah, and thank you, Baseball Reference, for being a site that allows me to uh, to, to bring that up in about ten <laughs> seconds when I when it pops into my brain, and then you know look at Bill Pakota's splits online. So, what a wonderful website, Baseball Reference is. And I'm going to say one more thing. Also, changing the subject, I've really enjoyed listening to Sarudi's new podcast, Conversations with Sarudi. It's a new podcast on Birds on the Black with from our very own Ben Cerruti. Everyone should listen to it. I've really enjoyed it so far. Lots of content coming from him and it's great. It's nice to have, uh, you know, another voice that we hear all the time in conversations or, or read his stuff and it's great to see him taking on the podcast world. So definitely check that out and enjoy it along with us. And we will hopefully be back in the next couple of weeks as some version of spring training eventually happens as players are finally allowed to get into the facilities. But for now, that'll do it. Alex, always a pleasure. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.